Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Any of you who have had the joy of hanging out with my wife recently have known that she is uh, quite the enthusiastic urban farmer these days. She's turning our expansive half acre into an urban oasis of raised bed gardens and orchards, uh, tiny orchards that is. And along the way, I've had to learn some, some horticulture. Uh, she's had to give me lessons on things, uh, you know, such as raised beds or particularly pruning, uh, which I've learned a lot about. Uh, I, I don't think I really understood the process of how pruning works as she explains to me the way that we have to cut back these trees. And in some ways, I, she's telling me this or she's showing me this and I'm thinking, you're going to kill that tree. I mean, you're going to cut that thing so hard that it will die. But that's not the way it works. That's, in fact, the very thing you need to do. It is amazing as you begin to learn the process of farming and caring for these kinds of fruit trees. It's amazing what happens when the farmer applies that kind of of care to his orchards or to his plants. It takes sometimes that kind of severe pruning and cutting away of all this dead and unhealthy in order to unleash the full productivity and health of a plant. All that, you might imagine, has caused me to reflect on the Lord's work in our life. He tells us in John 15 that he is the vine dresser and we're his vines and that among other things, he says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes, which in the past I've read and, and imagine that might be a, a snip of a leaf here or there, the clipping of a bud occasionally, maybe a twig, never realizing that at times it has to be severe. It has to be stern. It has to be dramatic. Cutting away, slicing away things to the point where people looking in from the outside might begin to say, you're going to kill that tree. You're going to kill that vine. You're going to kill that plant with that kind of severe pruning. But of course, the Lord knows. He knows that it's not going to kill. In fact, it's the best. The best thing for that tree, for that plant to be as healthy and as productive as it was designed to be. I think that's a helpful image as we come to our passage today in Matthew chapter 18 because it deals with what is in some senses from the outside looking in a harsh and severe process of pruning, of dealing with sin, of cutting away things in our lives that, uh, that we may not imagine would be that destructive to us or we may not realize could be that detrimental to our overall health or our fruitfulness, but they have to be dealt with. They have to be gotten rid of. This is a passage dealing with the difficult topic of how we confront sin in one another's life. And at one level, it's a passage that talks about how you and I might deal with that in each other's lives. But as the passage unfolds, we begin to realize that this is not just about you and me. This is about the Lord. Because as Jesus talks and, and, uh, and shares what he shares in this passage, we realize that this isn't just the workings of a man and a woman or 
the workings of one person with another. This is God's working in the life of the church, in the life of, of individuals. Now, I'm aware of, as we sort of embark on a study of this passage, that it is not favorably looked upon by modern society. People don't like the ideas or the topics of accountability, purity, purging, pruning, dealing with sin. We are in a society of exalted individualism where people believe that it is not only their personal right, their destiny, but it is inherent to their identity that they have absolute freedom to pursue whatever might be their personal longings and desires. And in any way, someone who would want to curb those longings and desires are attacking who they are as a person, not just what they're doing. And so some people recoil at this whole notion of anybody criticizing, they would say, or we would say confronting or calling out their sin. In fact, they may even use the very words of Christ out of the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest you be judged, as if that is some sort of blanket prohibition against all forms of questioning, all forms of moral standard, all forms of of discernment in someone else's life, without even realizing that it is in that very context of Matthew chapter 7, in that verse in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is calling on us to show discernment and in some ways confrontation of hypocritical religion. In other words, he's not against prohibition. He's against hypocritical confrontation, dealing with others in ways that you wouldn't deal with yourself, dealing with others with the same with a measure that you wouldn't measure against yourself. Or as he says in another way, going and trying to address the speck in their eye without first addressing the log in your own. That's always the assumption, always the necessary step, always sort of the background when you're dealing in Scripture with the sin of other people. Always there is the important step of first searching your own heart and dealing with your own motives and addressing your own sins of dealing with logs in your own eye before you can deal with specks in your brother's eye. But once you have done all of that, once you have sort of addressed all those initial steps, the Bible is unmistakable in its mandate that we as Christians, we as a church, must be about accountability and confrontation in one another's lives when necessary. And that's unmistakably clear in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20, a passage, by the way, that comes as a part of a broader discourse in Matthew 18, where Jesus is talking about greatness. That's how it starts in in verse 1 of chapter 18, a question about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And as Jesus answers that question, his focus turns to the humility of how we deal with the sins of other people, whether it is not wanting to be a source of temptation and stumbling to them, or whether it is going after those who have gone astray, or whether it is later in the chapter forgiving people over and over and over again. This greatness is largely defined in the way that we deal with the sins of other people. And one aspect of that that he wants you to understand is the necessary task when we have to sometimes talk directly. 
to a brother or sister about their sin. That's what he's dealing with in these particular verses. Let me just read it for us as we get started this morning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Jesus introduces this whole process, a step-by-step process of dealing with sin in the lives of brothers and sisters in the church. But he doesn't just lay out the process. He wants us to understand certain things about this process. He wants you to understand what its goals are, what its sort of authority is, and and where it all comes from. He lays out really what I think are three critical purposes for this process for us here to restore the repentant sinner, to reveal heaven's determination and ultimately to rely on His authority within the church. Each of those is vital to understand if we're to be faithful to what the Lord's commanded us to do here and if we are to experience the benefits and the health of this process within the church and ultimately if we're to understand what spiritual greatness looks like in the life of a believer. So I want to begin and I think we'll only have time this week to look at just the first aspect of this, just the first purpose of this entire process, which is simply the restoration of repentant sinners. He is calling us to a process that restores repentant sinners. That's the ultimate goal, the motive of everything that he spells out for us here. Is, uh, is to restore. He says it at the end of verse 15, to gain your brother or win your brother. It's not to ostracize them or push them away or retaliate against them or any of those things. It is to bring them back into a healthy, restored relationship, which uh, at this point has been deteriorated by their choices and their, and their uh, pursuit of sin. Now, Because of that overall purpose, the process that Jesus lays out here is deliberate. The the purpose drives the process. It It is designed the way it's designed because it's all designed for reconciliation. And so because of that, at a very fundamental level, it moves progressively from a more private scenario to a more public scenario, or from a private to a semi-private until eventually a more public exposure. And as you're thinking through this and perhaps walking through this, the key metric that you have to pay attention to as you are engaged in this is to, to, to know whether or not it's, 
It's necessary to advance it beyond a private matter. The key metric that Jesus gives us repeatedly in these verses is whether or not the person is listening. You can see that in verse 15, if he listens to you. Or again in verse 16, if he does not listen. Or in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, uh, that is to the church. Or again in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church. So this becomes the, uh, the trigger, the metric to know whether or not uh, the process needs to be escalated at some point or another. And the idea when he says all that is not wh- that, that they're physically in your presence and, and detecting audibly your words. That's not the idea. The idea is that they are attentive. Uh, that is, stands behind the word akuo. Uh, in the Greek, they are attentive, they're heeding, or they're listening to. They are, they are, in some sense, agreeing with what you're saying. In other words, they want to change. They may not be able to perfectly comply with everything because of the weakness of their, of their flesh or their patterns of life. The change is not going to be instantaneous. As a matter of fact, immediately after This whole instruction, Jesus launches into a discussion about forgiveness and tells you that you're going to find yourself where people are offending you over and over and over again. As many as 70 times 7. There's going to be repeated offenses and it's going to require repeated forgiveness and repeated patience because change is not instantaneous. So the issue is not the fact that they immediately correct everything that's wrong in their life, but they're listening. They're teachable, we might say, in another sense. They're attentive to your words. That in itself creates an atmosphere of communion and fellowship for a relationship that perhaps has been damaged or broken. You gain your brother. Now you, now you have this brother or sister that you're walking alongside of them in their mutual struggles of life. You're providing encouragement for them, accountability for them along the way. All, all the ways that you might support them. You've gained your brother because they have a receptive ear even as they continue to struggle through the issues of life. This is the way the Lord's designed the the body to function, not a place where everyone is showing up and pretending to be perfect and not have any weaknesses or any flaws or any battles with the flesh, but a place where people are humbly acknowledging their sin and humbly seeking help to grow through it from their other brothers and sisters. And this is hopefully the way the church is operating all the time. People helping one another, people encouraging one another, people operating with humility and reflecting on their own weaknesses and extending grace to others. But of course we know that's easier said than done. We know that in reality this is a hard thing. It is hard when you are offended. It is hard when you see someone sinning. You don't always know whether or not you should go and talk to them or how to go and talk to them, whether it's your place or, or whether or not you should wait for someone else. is hard. It's hard. You don't know what kind of reaction you'll get, what kind of pain you'll have to go through. You don't know any of those things. And so Jesus addresses this issue directly. And as I said, unmistakably. 
with his simple instructions on how to deal with sin in the life of other believers. Beginning, as I said, by talking to them privately. That would be your first step. Your first step is to go and to talk to them privately. And the reason you do this, as I said, is because the entire goal of the process is restoration. To maintain the relationship. And maintaining that relationship and bringing about restoration in practical terms is going to be very, very difficult if you deal with their sin by first going around and talking to everyone else about it rather than them. Maligning their character, ruining their reputation. That kind of approach doesn't often restore anyone. It doesn't strengthen the church. It does the opposite of what Jesus wants the process to do. It sows distrust within the church and it makes the person less likely to hear anything from you, any kind of correction, any kind of reproof from you or possibly even from the people that you've talked to. You are, at the end of the day, just putting up more obstacles for them. I mean, you can do that all kinds of ways. You put up obstacles by going around behind their back and talking to them. You put up obstacles by going to them with severe criticisms and and harsh words. That may also cause them to close off their heart to you and not listen to you. I love the words of John Calvin here. People think of John Calvin as this sort of austere sort of theologian, ivory tower theologian. He was actually a, a, a very gentle and gracious pastor of a church in, in Geneva, Switzerland with a church full of people with all kinds of lingering issues from their past history in Catholicism. And, and talking about this process, he says, those who have fallen do not often repent because they're regarded with hatred and treated as enemies and thus acquire a character of hardening obstinacy. Nothing, therefore, he says, is more appropriate than meekness, which reconciles to God those who have departed from him. I mean, he knew this. With all of his excellent theology and writing and, and, and scholarly leadership and all this other stuff, this man understood the basics of human nature and reaction. This, of course, is also what Paul instructs us to do in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a a trespass or a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So God in his divine wisdom has given us all of this instruction because he knows our temptation is not to do any of this. And he also understands that that on one hand, people are much, much more likely to hear a word from someone that they know genuinely cares about them and is able to communicate that care and concern by the way that they conduct their lives and the way that they, they carry out their speech. They add persuasiveness to their speech by their gentleness. And in like fashion, you communicate your care for someone by going and talking to them directly about the issue rather than, than everyone else. By the way, I've had a chance to experience this a number of times. Uh, I speak from personal experience. Those who have come to talk to me about my many sins and weaknesses through the years. I mean, I've had those experiences where I felt like the person talking to me was going to come across the desk and swing at me. Or I've had... The opposite, where the person talking to me almost seems more burdened with agony 
over their care and concern and love for me than I would even feel for my own sin. It's evident of their love for me. I remember one particular man in my life when I was younger uh, uh, that would uh, always talk to me in the gentlest tones. He had a way of kind of dipping his glasses and looking over the rim as he smiled and gently said to me, do you think there was any pride in the way you responded to that? Or he might ask me, were you, were you feeling impatient just now? With the gentlest, most kind dagger into my heart that you could never, you could never not receive the words that he gave to you. And yet the Lord used him in so many ways to shape my heart and my character. So when we understand the entire goal of what Jesus is trying to lay out here, we understand the purpose of reconciliation. Then this whole idea, not only of gentleness, but the whole idea of privacy as the first step makes total sense. We prepare our hearts, we search our hearts, we look at logs in our own eye, We reflect on the Lord's mercy toward us. And with that kind of fresh remembrance of our own prayers of confession and our own cries for God's grace, we go to the brother or sister as privately as possible. But even with all of that, even with all the sincerest of love and and the gentlest of, of speech, there are still those who have become so entrenched in the pursuits of their life. They've become so enamored with the idols that they have established in their heart that they still refuse to listen. And when that's the case, Jesus says you have to escalate this to a second level, a second step, if you will, in verse 16. If he doesn't listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is still attempting to guard the privacy of the matter as much as possible. You are involving a few more people, not everybody. Again, Jesus just simply understanding that people are way more likely to listen the more things are kept in private. They don't have to deal with the social distractions of what people may think of them, public perception. They can more easily focus on the spiritual issues of their heart. And so you go still maintaining some level of privacy, but you're going now with these two or three others, Jesus says, for the purpose of establishing every charge and evidence. Not that they're necessarily witnesses to the sin Uh, you may not know if they're witnesses to the sin in fact the only way you could know would be to go around and survey the entire congregation to see if everyone else sees what you sees which is uh, sees what you saw which is essentially uh, some form of gossip chatter and spreading uh, spreading word about the person's sin that's counterproductive this is not someone who saw necessarily the same things you saw, but they're coming to watch and to witness your conversation with this person. They are, in one sense, eyewitnesses of the actual confrontation and character witnesses in terms of the response to the confrontation. They're serving kind of that twofold purpose. 
First and foremost, they're establishing facts. They're gathering evidence in case this has to go eventually before the congregation. They are fulfilling a a legal standard which was laid out in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That, that, that standard was laid out in God's law in order to protect people from false accusations of crime. And, uh, and Jesus uses that same legal standard here that these witnesses are coming along to clarify and to establish what did and what did not happen. And they want to, along the way, gather all the adequate, convincing proof, if you will, of the accusation, because they understand that so many times when there are frictions in relationships, they're not built on actual issues of sin. There are all kinds of offenses that we take that are nothing more than personal offenses. Someone hasn't done anything that's a violation of God's law or anything that's, a, that's a, an offense to God's character. They are maybe oblivious to some of the ways that they might be perceived, but they are not actively sinning. They might be doing things different than you do them. In other words, this is an issue of preference, and you've taken offense over a personal preference. Or possibly, you have mistakenly assumed things about their heart and about their motives You were offended by something that happened and now you are reading into so many of their actions, motives that aren't really there. And so these two or three witnesses come along to assess all of that stuff, to make sure that none of those things are happening, that that there was actually some offense that took place, some some sin issue that could be defined and, and addressed. Secondly, these witnesses are there to validate the response of the person being confronted. They confirm that the offending brother uh, has responded in a certain way, or they, they are there to be witnesses of how they respond, what they said, what they, uh, uh, sort of how they defended themselves, or whatever it might be, partly just to sort of bring clarity, but also for the potential that they may try to change their story or evade accountability or deny something in the future. And so they want to be there to make sure that everything is, is if you will, sort of documented or at least uh, verified to make sure, by the way, that both Parties are fairly represented if the matter has to go forward before the church. They, they understand that this is an emotional process, that people, even in the best of circumstances, can, can sometimes miss what was being said or maybe out of emotion, uh, maybe downplay or, or reinterpret something uh, in, a, in a way that it shouldn't have been taken. And so they want to make sure that everything is, is fairly represented. Thirdly, we might say that these witnesses are there to make sure no one's mistreated, to make sure that the conversation is conducted in a godly way. They are themselves a, a, a bit more detached from the process. They're not as emotionally 
uh, sort of uh, uh, bought in or engaged to these offenses, they are hopefully in some way credible witnesses. That is to say, you're not sort of taking your homies and, uh, you know, your devotees and your fan club. You know, you're, you're not dragging along your teenagers to be witnesses to whatever it might be. You are there with credible. In fact, it, it's wisest for you to take someone that you think that person you're confronting would respect. It's most likely to listen to. If the goal of everything is reconciliation, then you want them to have the best listening ear. And so you want to find a respectable, uh, 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 influential person in their life to take along with you. And they are there to make sure that the emotions don't get out of hand, that the process doesn't get distorted and devolve into even more hurtful words and hurtful conversations, to make sure that everything is appropriately clear and appropriately gentle so that it can facilitate reconciliation. Fourthly, they're there to emphasize the seriousness of the situation. I mean, by virtue of the fact that they've been invited, it ought to communicate the seriousness. And by the way, when you invite them, you should certainly be gracious enough to the person you're talking to to let them know that you are bringing some other people to talk to them. I mean, you yourself would not want to feel ambushed or caught off guard by some, ra- some sort of uh, uh, random conversation in a random place that you weren't expecting. And so you inform the person that you're bringing others with you to talk to them about this particular issue of which you have accused them. And if they haven't at this point, hopefully they begin to grasp the seriousness of this as, uh, as they're now involving other people. And, and if the witnesses are there and they, they sense that maybe that hasn't happened yet, they can provide additional encouragement and admonition to everyone involved to remember the commands of Christ, to walk in humility and to strive for holiness and to guard your witness before the Lord and to maintain unity in the body of of Christ, to really emphasize the dangers, potential dangers that are there. They're involved, in other words, with the exhortations, even the confrontations. That's implied when Jesus says in the plural now, if he doesn't listen to them. You're taking people who are willing and are able to become engaged and involved, if necessary, in the confrontation. And then fifth, these witnesses are there to help, hopefully, in the process of reconciliation. They can provide encouragement and support when the, the brother or sister begins to repent and try to rebuild uh, their, their relationships and undo some of the damage. They can provide wisdom with complicated circumstances and problems. They can provide encouragement uh, and words of comfort to the heart of the repentant sinner along the way. Jesus has laid all this out, understanding that these sometimes are the necessary steps to bring someone to the place of clarity and repentance and ultimately reconciliation. 
But he also understood that you can take all of these precautions, you can do all of these things, you can have all these credible witnesses, and still they may refuse to listen. In which case, he talks again about an escalation, a third step in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. If he doesn't take the exhortations from the two or three You now must involve the entire body of Christ. This is obviously a very stern and severe step, a serious step. And uh, one that has, in many cases, been more than people are willing to do. I've been been told that 1% of churches actually ever do this. At least in the modern era, it was much more common in the days gone by. This is, this is not frequently done because it is so difficult to do. In fact, some people uh, have read this and the plain language of this, and rather than complying and, and following God's command, rather than doing what Christ calls us to do in the church, they, they do all kinds of things to get around this step. They either, in some ways, completely ignore this altogether Or they might suggest that in some way or some fashion, the church is not the church here. There are those people who would say, well, you know, Jesus talks about the church. But but at that point in time, there would have been no church because the church had not been established. And and so consequently, Jesus must be talking about, you know, some other group of people. Maybe Maybe it's good enough just to tell another Christian because they're part of the church. Or maybe just some small group, some representative group, maybe your, your community group or your leadership team, just tell them, and they can kind of represent the rest of the entire church, as if, you know, you just have two or three witnesses and then you add three or four more. And so people have done this all along the way because, quite frankly, this is a difficult step to do. Like the farmer who's pruning his trees, it could seem, it could appear to some people who are on the outside looking in that the whole goal of all this is not health and not productivity, but destruction. But Jesus hasn't left the process of reconciliation at all. He still knows that this is necessary. And so it has to be carried out in front of the church. We don't really know what... Uh, Jesus's actual uh, vocabulary was here because he was most likely speaking to the disciples in his native tongue of Aramaic. But when Matthew comes to write his gospel two decades later, translating the words of Christ into the Greek and pinning his gospel in Greek, he would have definitely understood the purpose and intent of Christ, that this was a step to be carried out in front of the entire congregation of people, the church, the gathered church. And if you have any doubt about that, if you have any doubt about the application of what Christ is telling you here in Matthew chapter 18, it is confirmed in later passages of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul instructs churches to carry out this very process And he says, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, that you're to do this when you are all gathered together. 
In other words, in some sort of normal, regular gathering, we would say worship service of the church. This kind of rebuke, um, as I said, is distasteful in a world of unfettered individualism, people believing that their personhood is defined by their freedom to pursue any personal desire, any personal longing without any outside influence or pressure to conform to a standard. To, to do that in their minds would be to call them to be an unauthentic person, to not really be who they are. And so there's this, this, there's this uh, broad uh, mentality today that any of this kind of activity is inherently a moral violation and an unloving act. And so as you get ready to do something like this, when you are willing to obey the Lord in this, you have to prepare yourself for the perception among others that this is, in fact, counterproductive that this is actually destructive, this kind of harsh and severe pruning. But it's clearly the command of the Lord. And it is clearly intended to create social pressure. In fact, when Paul calls for a similar kind of uh, a public rebuke and, uh, and uh, exclusion, if you will, in the Thessalonian church. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, uh, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from the brother who's walking in idleness and not according to the tradition you've received from us. He says in verse 15, if anyone, or excuse me, verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he might be ashamed. So there's very clearly an intended purpose at this public step to increase social pressure on the person. They're supposed to be forced to think more deeply about everything, the consequences of their behavior, everything that they may potentially give up and forfeit and do away with out of pursuit of their particular sin. And then through all that, hopefully, hopefully they will come to their senses. Having heard a multitude of counselors having heard from multiple voices of people who previously had been involved with their life and expressed love to them, having been in that place where they've heard clearly articulated for them the commands of the Lord and the standards of righteousness, hopefully, on top of all that, now that they consider giving up all of these relationships, they will humble themselves. But even then, Jesus says, that may not be enough. They may still harden their hearts. He says, they may even refuse to listen to the church. In which case, he says, there's a fourth step you have to take. And that is a formal exclusion. A formal removal. A a, 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 a 
a putting out, if you will, of the church. That's what he says when he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Those, those are the outcasts in Jewish society. Those are the ones that you, you didn't even enter their house. A Jew wouldn't even enter the house of a tax gatherer. He wouldn't enter the house. He certainly wouldn't eat at the same table as a Gentile. Some people with very poor methods of interpretation import ideas into this passage that are foreign to the context and in fact up in the whole meaning of the context whenever they uh, begin to surmise well you know uh, we're supposed to uh, love tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles and so uh, whatever this means here uh, maybe we're supposed to be embracing and loving and and uh, you know spending time with these people who are in this place. We're not supposed to be putting them away from the church. We're supposed to be actually hanging around with them and, and uh, having meals together with them. That was, in fact, the same mistake made by the Corinthian church when Paul was instructing them to deal decisively with sin in their midst. He actually calls them arrogant for not complying with the Lord's command here. And he tells them in verse, in verse uh, uh, 9, I wrote to you in my letter, do not associate with sexually immoral people, uh, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or a reviler or drunkard or swindler, do not even so much as eat with such a one. You see, the Corinthians had upended the Lord's command. They had upended the Lord's command. They did what so many churches do. They actually had, had allowed their external witness to be muted or in some cases eliminated they weren't reaching out to the lost they weren't really proclaiming the gospel to the swindlers to the sexually immoral outside the church but at the same time they were opening up their doors in membership and fellowship and participation to people who called themselves christians but lived like the world they were, in the words of the Apostle Paul, they were brothers in name only, meaning that they had no real intention of following God's clear commands in Scripture, but they wanted to still have the label of Christian. And you see this happening all the time in churches today where they, uh, they welcome into their midst people who have worldly mindsets and worldly lifestyles. They have embraced uh, everything that is against the gospel they are sexually immoral or they support sexually immoral lifestyles. They are, they are in their own pursuits full of, of, of greed or, or in some cases idolatry. They're drunkards, swindlers or any of those things. And churches fill their seats with these kinds of people for whom there's never a real demand of transformation in their life. Well, what's the outcome of all that? Well, the outside, outside the church, people looking in, 
They look inside and what do they say? All those people are all hypocrites. Every one of them. They, just, they, they say that they're Christians, but they don't really live a consistent Christian life. And what happens is the witness of the church actually becomes thwarted by a church welcoming in its midst people who are not willing to live and comply with a gospel-centered lifestyle. And it's the beginning of the rot that eats away at the heart of a church, eats away at its witness and its health and its life. Paul actually says it's like leaven that begins to slowly, almost, almost undetectably seep slowly into the lives of all the rest of the congregation, into their ministry, into their witness, into their worship. And the church becomes ineffective. You know, the Lord only gave two commands in his lifetime to the church. The one we all know in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That, that, that great command, that great commission that everyone celebrates Everyone pursues, but everyone forgets the first command. The first command here in Matthew chapter 18, deal decisively with sin in your midst. In fact, I think the sequence of the commands is intentional. You, in order, if you're going to ever fulfill the second command, if you're ever really going to be the kind of witness and effective at reaching the world the way that God intended you to be, you're going to have to, first of all, deal decisively with the issue of purity within the congregation. You're going to have to be willing to obey the Lord in this step of formal removal. As I read to you from 1 Corinthians, the mandate is clear. You don't even so much as eat with such a one. Or as Paul, as we read earlier from from 2 Thessalonians, you keep away from the brother or sister who's walking this way. Or later on, you have nothing to do with them. Why? Well, because the goal, the goal, which is reconciliation. You say, well, how can that reconcile? How How can that kind of harsh pruning away Make them more fruitful. Well, in the Lord's wisdom and design, He knows. You strip away from them all the comforts of their Christian fellowship and care in the body of Christ, and you make them stand in the harsh winds of the choices of their sin and begin to watch their life suffer under that until eventually, hopefully, They come to their senses and return. You're not supposed to provide aid and comfort to the one who is actively and defiantly fleeing from the Lord's clear instruction. Well, that's the uh, nuts and bolts, but that's not the total picture. There are other aspects of this that Jesus wants us to understand. They're vital for us to understand in terms of His purposes for this process. They're given to us in verses 18 through 20, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. Father, we're grateful for the, for the love that you give to us, even when it comes with your pruning work. You have never 
abandon us, though you often discipline us. And the discipline is, is not pleasant in the season, but it brings with it the everlasting fruit of righteousness. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand your loving care for us so that we can participate in your loving care for the church and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us a willing heart to do the unpopular and difficult things that you call us to do so that we might be fruitful, healthy, flourishing as planted by our vine dresser, tended by you, carrying out your will and finding ourselves useful in your hands. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.